You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. I acknowledge that we meet today on the ancestral lands of the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of this land. I pay my respects to elders past and present and those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I'm delighted and deeply honoured to be giving this 2023 Ian McCalman lecture, in honour of someone who's inspired generations of scholars at SEI and in the university and beyond. I'm also very grateful to SEI for creating and curating this opportunity and to both SEI and Sydney Law School for their ongoing support of my research. Today, I'm going to explore the foundations of future climate governance and how we can harness our governance frameworks to achieve deep coordination and change. In 2022, a new federal government in its first annual climate change statement acknowledged that Australia needs to transform, and I quote, on a scale beyond anything that we've experienced in our lifetime. Transformation of our economy, it continued, brings immense opportunities that will go elsewhere if we don't grasp them. And the government's Powering Australia plan presents a substantial suite of measures to accelerate Australia's emissions reduction and deliver reliable and affordable energy. So changes on the horizon, at least in sound bites, after decades of policy vacillation and backsliding. But how do we ensure that this transformation happens within the next five years? We know that Australia is and will be seriously impacted by climate change, but the Australian government is only now beginning to put together the key pieces of the national policy and governance puzzle. Last few decades have seen countless inquiries, reviews, plans for energy transformation, climate mitigation, and climate adaptation. My interest in this topic began in earnest in about 2008, when I travelled to Belgium to do a, a specialist master's in energy and environmental law. At this stage, the EU was the global leader in climate action, and I had the chance to learn from EU scholars and practitioners and undertake internships, and the idea was to come back to Australia and contribute to the policy and governance reform process. But it's been more than 15 years since Professor Ross Garneau prescribed an emissions trading scheme to be governed uh, by, or integrated into international carbon markets and governed by an independent carbon bank. More than five years have passed since Dr Alan Finkel issued a blueprint for the future security of the national electricity market. And that report recommended, among other things, a, a whole of economy emissions reduction strategy for 2050, a clean energy target, and a new Australian energy market agreement to take a nationally consistent approach to energy policy. All of these reviews emphasise the seriousness of the problem and the likely severity of climate change impacts in Australia. Their findings were consistent with Australian expert contributions to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, including standalone chapters on impacts. But in 2023, 
much of the most crucial and difficult strategic and implementation work remains to be done on understanding impacts, on the planning the necessary energy transition, achieving our promised contributions to the Paris Agreement, planning for inevitable climate disasters, and of course adapting to a future with climate change. So today I'm really focusing on one part of the climate change response, the energy transition, informed by other experiences in other sectors like water. The Albanese government aims to reduce Australia's greenhouse gas emissions by 43% below 2005 levels by 2030 and source 82% of energy from renewable sources. And these targets are incredibly important, of course, but they're only the beginning. A concrete plan to achieve these ambitions hasn't yet been released and we don't have a framework that will actually bind the Australian economy to meaningful regulation and adaptation. A revised safeguard mechanism's been announced, but it only covers about 28% of emissions and doesn't apply, at least in practical terms, to the electricity sector, which represents about 45% of our emissions. And there's a lot of current debate about its design. So how then do we move from these political sound bites to coordinated action and implementation. Our over-reliance on non-renewable fossil, non fossil fuels, underinvestment in the grid, and an absence of a concrete plan to get to net zero emissions by 2050 are not just political, economic, or engineering problems. They are fundamentally problems of governance and building climate governance capacity needs to be a central focus of our solutions. I use the term climate governance here to refer to frameworks, including legal frameworks, mechanisms and institutions used to scale up and speed up climate action. So these frameworks can provide a legal or a policy mandate for action and an arena for diverse actors, so governments, companies, NGOs, communities, community organisations, individuals, to interact, collaborate and innovate to develop and implement policy. Over the last few decades, we've seen climate governance expand from multilateral agreements under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, including the Paris Agreement, to include national and subnational initiatives. According to the IPCC, 56 countries now have um, climate framework laws covering 53% of global emissions. Governments, financial regulators, emissions markets, companies, local government, financial regulators, courts, tribunals, all now play a role in the so-called climate regime complex. But at the same time, what we've found is that we've got this challenge now of, of linking and coordinating all of these various spheres of governance and it's become very clear that our governance frameworks are going to need to be further improved and innovated to actually combat climate change and adapt to its impact. Major environmental law reforms that we actually have managed to enact in Australia haven't been well implemented. So the Murray-Darling Basin, for example, major policy reforms to manage our scarce water resources have been plagued by vested interests continue to be poorly implemented. And we see the same with climate mitigation and adaptation. 
But what laws and governance forms do we need to establish right now in Australia to facilitate this whole of nation effort? What should our future climate governance look like? Answering these questions requires a much deeper understanding of the transition process and the coordination required. And there are going to be many important features of future climate governance. My research focuses on four key pillars that have informed my most recent research. So governance frameworks that can support strategic leadership from the federal government for coordinated responses across the states and territories that can support Australia's experimentation to achieve rapid and critical transformations, that prioritise retention of social licence and legitimacy as climate mitigation is accelerated and upscaled, and that promote innovation in Australia's deployment of climate finance in the Pacific region to ensure an inclusive, just and sustainable climate transition. So first, I'll go back. <laughs> our, our current challenges show that we need multiple layers of governance in Australia, right from the national to the local level. But the critical role of the federal government in providing leadership and a source of governance and innovation has been neglected. Recent floods and bushfires in New South Wales have really demonstrated a clear absence of coordination and mapping of governance at various scales. And so many, weak, so many examples of weak or fragmented sectoral laws and therefore government capacity. Rather than proactively under, you know, addressing all of these underlying governance issues that could mitigate or even prevent these impacts, government resources are being diverted in a more reactive way to actually respond to these emergencies as they happen. We need to revisit the fundamentals of governance, to rethink how governments can facilitate cooperation among public, private and civil societies at different levels, particularly for those communities who really haven't been served well. And in this process, the federal government needs to serve a critical coordinating and strategic leadership role. While the federal government's target of 82% renewable energy uh, will really focus investors, increase the uptake of wind and solar, these targets will not, in themselves, overcome the market and political risks and cost. Risks and costs that arise from a lack of national coordination combined with physical challenges within the national electricity market, or the NEM. Australia is undergoing a process of deep renewable electrification as its largest coal-fired power generators are closing or nearing the end of their useful lives. To accomplish this, the grid has to be reconfigured to accommodate geographically dispersed wind farms and solar farms and also consumers who are going to be contributing to a growing share of supply through distributed energy resources like rooftop solar. Since the previous coalition government vacated the policy space in 2013, Transition processes have been led by the states, and this has resulted in a fragmented NEM. All state and territory governments have adopted emissions reduction targets of net zero emissions by 2050, and many states have sought to protect local benefits and jobs within the clean energy sector. The result is a patchwork of measures, 
with states and territories setting their own targets and reforming in an ad hoc and disjointed manner, using different policies and approaches to achieve the same goal. Each state has its own renewable energy targets and is developing its own plans for the construction of renewable energy zones, new transmission lines, retaining social licence. Each state plans to achieve its targets by creating and regulating electricity within its own borders. And while in, in some contexts local policy experimentation is very beneficial, these particular renewable energy developments constitute backsliding in the context of the NAM, even if states are trying to do the right thing. It's fragmentation that's going to cost households and businesses that will be actually required to fund all of this investment. To meet the federal government's targets, the Commonwealth states and territories will instead need to share renewable energy resources Snowy 2.0, for example, will, when it's finally completed, provide New South Wales and Victoria with invaluable, dispatchable on-demand generating capacity and storage when it's not windy or sunny. Marinus Link will make Tasmania's renewable energy and storage resources available to back up solar and wind in Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia and Queensland. But from the plans they've published, it looks as if Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland would actually prefer to develop their own renewable energy resources rather than rely on those in other states. And the states and territories are very unlikely to change course without proper coordination, incentives and governance from the federal government, which needs to take a leadership role to actually drive this coordination within the NEM. Promisingly, our energy ministers now meet again. They meet again regularly through the Energy National Cabinet Reform Committee and the energy ministers' meeting, and they do discuss key reforms and priority issues of national importance. And these structures replace COAG that was disbanded in 2020. But the federal government is going to continue to face challenges, actually establishing a coordination role within the regulatory landscape that's emerged over time. Energy is primarily a state responsibility under the Constitution, and states have resisted transferring legislative power. Meanwhile, there's this urgent need now for multi-level governance that actually incorporates a national perspective, has cross-cutting regulatory and coordination capabilities, and can integrate state and territory renewable energy policies. And it needs to do this while delivering a transition that's just and takes community considerations and co-benefits into account. The Murray-Darling Basin is a cautionary tale about the need to actually protect these structures once they're in place. So in contrast to the energy sector, the federal government did actually develop national water policy that it enacted through the Commonwealth 2007 Water Act. And what this act did is it enabled the federal government to shift from facilitating reforms by the states at the edges to actually stepping in and intervening in the, in the reform process on a whole of basin basis. And this was in the context of a very rapidly deteriorating river environment. These were wholesale reforms, 
They established a Murray-Darling Basin Authority and a basin plan to set environmentally sustainable limits on water withdrawals across the MDB. But still, the basin plan, sorry, the basin continues to deteriorate. And scientists agree that inland rivers will experience acutely drier conditions in the future despite recent floods, particularly in the southern basin. South Australian Royal Commission found that the basin plan didn't reflect best, best available science and actually contravened the requirements of the Water Act. And this can be attributed in large part to the fact that the, government's, the governance regime didn't fully shield the Murray-Darling Basin Authority from the politics of the process. Meanwhile, the basin plan itself has only been partially implemented. So once the basin plan was enacted, uh, state governments were really reluctant to actually implement the withdrawal limits that had been set across the basin through state-level subplans. This was particularly the case in New South Wales, which only resubmitted all of its water resource plans in February this year, so three years late. Same time, water extractions haven't been well monitored by the states and there's been poor compliance with the caps that do exist on withdrawals. Various compromises negotiated in the final stages of the basin plan process haven't been implemented, so that includes an adjustment mechanism to account for supply and irrigation projects. These haven't been implemented on time and it's because the, state, the basin states aren't delivering on these projects. Public opinion's been divided on how water should be recovered for the environment and, and to what extent, and rent-seeking behaviour has affected public decisions regarding both voluntary water buybacks and irrigation infrastructure subsidies across the basin. Throughout the implementation process, basin states have continued to make decisions in the Ministerial Council that have undermined the Basin Authority's implementation process and its independence to actually manage the basin in the national interest. And it's going to take considerable political force to actually turn this situation around and deliver the plan in full by the deadline of 2024. All of this demonstrates, I think, um, that simply transferring legislative powers and leadership to the federal government is not going to be enough. Ongoing political buy-in from the states is obviously going to be required, and governance frameworks actually have to facilitate this. Once policy's been set by our political leaders, climate transformation, you know, of this, the kind of magnitude that'll be needed across sectors requires strong, effective and transparent institutions that are protected from politics and vested interest and supported by strong coordinating laws and compensation mechanisms. And these institutions will need to be not only independent, but accountable to the public. Once federal leadership and coordination's in place, we are going to need governance frameworks that can support Australia's experimentation for climate-led transformation. Again, my focus is the energy sector, and I'll explain what I mean by experimentation in a moment. All of you know that accelerating climate change requires us to develop technologies capable of transforming our energy, land, infrastructure, and industrial sectors. But that's only half the challenge 
We also have to implement these technologies at all levels of government. And we have to do this within really complex, dynamic and interconnected socio-technical systems like electricity grids. So simply increasing funding for R&D or scaling up investments for climate solutions just isn't going to be enough. To actually embed these innovations with all of the problem solving that this is going to need, both public and private organisations have to actually coordinate and synchronise their efforts and activities to, to identify what works and then rapidly develop and propagate solutions. But examples of governance frameworks that can actually enable this, these forms of quite deep coordination and change are rare. So my research is focused on governance frameworks to facilitate experimentation for renewable electrification. That is a mouthful. So experimentation is a term I use to describe government or publicly funded interventions made in a real world context to generate, develop and test new climate solutions or prototypes. These experiments can produce a whole host of outcomes, so obviously improving technology, um, but also new market conditions, improved infrastructure or even new governance frameworks themselves that facilitate collaboration between stakeholders. Successful experiments bring stakeholders together to identify problems, develop solutions, implement, evaluate and revisit responses. In Australia, the early stages of the renewable energy transition were driven by the Commonwealth Renewable Energy Target, public finance and a rapid decline in the cost of wind and solar PV generation. But further reductions in the sector and ultimately a zero carbon grid are going to need very concentrated problem solving efforts on the part of government departments, regulators, transmission operators, technology vendors, generators, consumers. Just to give you an idea of the challenge, to reach net zero emissions by 2050 in Australia, electricity generation will need to shift from fossil to renewable sources and then transport and other energy intensive sectors will need to be electrified or converted to new sources of energy like green hydrogen. We need to support the full commercialisation and deployment of technologies that are currently within grasp because some of the newer breakthrough technologies will be decades away. And in Australia's case, AMO has identified that this could be a portfolio of utility scale renewables, battery storage, distributed energy resources, pumped hydro, transmission upgrades. So as coal and gas generators are phased out, New technologies need to be trialled, demonstrated, brought forward for commercialisation, like forecasting technologies, virtual power plants, battery storage. And then these new technologies will need to be supported by innovations in market design, new business models, systems operation and regulation. Billions of dollars are going to need to be spent for transmission networks, and replacement generation to reconfigure the grid to a more decentralised model that's actually capable of connecting all of these dispersed wind farms and solar farms and um, allowing consumers to contribute to supply as well. So my point is that the tr transition task is formidable. 
but legal and institutional structures have emerged to address this challenge. And the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, provides mature, world-leading examples of this form of experimentation in Australia. ARENA couples public funding with deep forms of public-private collaboration. It's funded, led, participated in a host of pilot projects and collaborative activities, so for example, in relation to virtual power plants, distributed energy resources, marked by its connections to stakeholders and focus on knowledge sharing. ARENA uses a host of methods to find out what key stakeholders, so governments, market operators, regulators, industry, consumer groups, consider to be the key on-the-ground issues in relation to increasing renewable energy uptake, from technological and commercial issues through to regulatory and market barriers. And it communicates with energy market bodies to find out what their future priorities are for demonstrations which can inform their work. A clear and, and relatively digestible example um, is some of ARENA's early experiments in relation to solar and wind forecasting technologies. So to operate the NEM, the market operator, major ma market operator must constantly balance the supply and demand of energy in real time, so every second or sub-second. But wind and solar generators export the amount of power they generate when the wind blows, when the sun shines, and the amount of power generated at any given time is uncertain. Solar cloud cover, for instance, can result in quite large changes in electricity generation, which then need to be balanced by increasing or decreasing power from other power stations at short notice or by improving storage. So through ARENA's A-Labs, which included industry and government stakeholders, the concept of a national data-rich now-casting system was developed to integrate millions of data points to forecast wind and solar power. AMO and ARENA then collaborated on a funding round for trials where wind and solar generators collaborated with uh, forecasting providers to, to produce forecasts that AMO could use in its market operation. AMO does generate its own forecasts, but they can be inaccurate, and um, generators and consumers have to bear the costs of those inaccuracies. So through the A-Labs and this collaborative piloting process, wind and solar generators have fundamentally changed their participation in the market bidding and, dis and dispatching process. They can now submit their own more accurate forecasts, and this has enhanced system security, ultimately enabling um, a higher percentage of variable renewable energy to be dispatched. So th this is just one relatively simple example of how these experimentation approaches can contribute to energy transformation. But more focused research and inquiry is needed uh, on the combination of governance structures and tools that can produce these new and effective solutions from experimentation and the conditions for their success. As a governance tool, ARENA's approach can be used to break up you know, a, a fairly broad-based and complex challenge of decarbonising a sector into smaller blocks that, you, that are much more suitable for problem solving and piloting and, and, and demonstrations. With the right legal settings, agencies can shoulder the risk of developing leading edge technologies that might fail. 
fund and test potential solutions, define success from multiple perspectives, and share knowledge on what does and doesn't work. But importantly, there are a number of challenges posed by experimentation from the perspective of law and governance. Failure is a necessary part of innovation. And experimentation is a way for that failure to occur quite sort of efficiently and effectively. The challenge is to create a governance framework that can really support this attitude to risk and the potential political costs of not succeeding. ARENA's experiences with potential defunding and historical pressures on its investment mandate really show us how its governance structure still leaves it vulnerable to interference in quite a few ways. And it's clear from their experiences, from ARENA's experiences, that agencies need legal structures that provide long-term funding solutions and certainty, protect board integrity, and clearly define the agency's investment mandate. And this is really important because there are likely to be ongoing tensions in relation to responsible innovation and the government's willingness to divert public resources um, into you know, emerging technologies like carbon capture and storage, like green hydrogen, rather than you know, perhaps proven technologies like solar, wind, batteries, hydro, electrification. And there are some open questions about whether these technologies will be used to distract and delay and which industries are pushing them. And that brings me to my third pillar which is the need for governance to bring along communities and retain social licence. The Albanese government's announced renewable energy targets, but the implementation agenda still remains relatively undefined from a public perspective. And there's a big risk here that the general public aren't necessarily aware of the magnitude of, uh, are aware of, the magnitude of change that's coming and the challenging implementation road ahead. As AMO's integrated system plan illustrates, Australia's transition to net zero is going to rely very heavily on a decarbonised energy sector and an unprecedented level of generation and transmission build. So to meet the federal government's energy targets, renewable energies need to build, renewable energy generators need to build these projects where the wind and solar resources are, are best. And of course, this doesn't always correspond with the existing grid capacity, because the NEM was designed originally around the characteristics of large coal-fired power coal generators situated near large coal mining areas. So what's happened is that state and territory governments have committed to developing renewable energy zones, or RESs, which fall within state jurisdiction. Within these RESs, we're going to see a rapid acceleration of renewable energy projects, so solar, wind, batteries, pumped hydro, which will in turn be connected to the grid through new high-voltage transmission infrastructure across the countryside. New South Wales government, for example, plans to deliver reses in the central west Irana, so that was the first uh, res declared, New England, southwest, Hunter Central, Hunter Central Coast, and the Illawarra regions. So you can see this under its electricity infrastructure roadmap. A fundamental issue which organisations like the Realliance, like the Clean Energy Council and indeed SCI are deeply engaged in 
is, this, is the need for this infrastructure to not lose its social licence, as it has in other parts of the world, like Germany. Social licence is the acceptance um, granted to a company, organisation, project, or, or indeed an industry, by stakeholders and communities based on trust and confidence. So AMO's ISP shows what AMO thinks an efficient grid and generation mix will look like spatially under different future scenarios. We see a dense network of new high voltage transmission lines, new wind farms, and new solar farms on the maps and schematics of the ISP. And this infrastructure is on top of what Australia already has. In this context, reses, as well as the high voltage transmission lines needed to connect generators to the NEM, need to be implemented exceptionally carefully so that host communities can benefit from increased access to this critical infrastructure and renewable energy. Reses are also going to have a significant impact on the workforce. Just consider this. The New South Wales Business Council estimates that inland rail and energy projects in the Riverina-Murray region alone will require 5,000 additional workers and $40 billion in investment. And state and federal governments are unlikely to coordinate during these, these boom-bust periods of activity and employment. So while it's crucial that reses succeed and that new, new generators, new renewable energy generators can connect to the NEM as old generators retire, the government's social licence is fragile. And the Victorian Renew Western Renewables link is a very apt case in point. Um, this project is being developed by Ausnet's commercial division, Mondo, involves building two new network links, 220 kilovolt overhead line from Bolgana in Western Victoria um, to a new terminal north of Ballarat, and a second 500 kilovolt line from Ballarat to a new terminal station on Melbourne's Western Fringe. One local farmer uses tractor and his GPS data to send Ausnet a blunt message. According to Peter Muir, his farm near Ballarat would be rendered unusable if the project is approved. Osnet's community engagement approach led to the project's formal commu uh, community consultation group resigning and farmers threatening to block Osnet from accessing their land. Opposition leaders point out that, you know, while renewable energy resources need to be unlocked, it must be done the right way. And I quote the former Shadow Treasurer, Louise Staley. Part of the program, she remarked, with this project is that AMO drew lines on a map, there was a contract let, and then community and landowners were brought in. We think that's the wrong way. We understand that this is complex, that these are big infrastructure needs, but as we transition, we think that there's a better way to do it than the way the government's doing it. We should be looking to use the latest in technology, undergrounding where we can, battery storage along the way, ensuring that there is local community benefit, not just through community funds, but through cheaper access to renewables in the corridors and proper ongoing remuneration for all affected landholders. And this list is important. All of these things add up to social licence. The government can't just rely on community engagement and jobs. But the transition is complicated by a few things. One of those things is um, cost. So using underground lines costs 
many, many, many more times than the overhead option. And undergrounding also has quite significant impacts on the environment and cultural heritage sites and indeed agricultural farming land. The other complication um, stems from the regulatory frameworks. So as a general rule, Sorry, you do need, I do need to have some law in here. Um, new transmission infrastructure projects are governed by the national electricity rules, which require only the least cost and technically feasible projects proceed. Specifically, under the electricity, national electricity law and rules which reflect the national electricity objective, the NEO, um, transmission companies are required to adhere to regulatory investment tests, and they're only allowed to recover efficient costs as set by the Australian Energy Regulator. So the purpose of this test, it's called the RIT-T, is to identify the transmission investment option that maximises net economic benefits um, and, and meets reliability standards. The idea is, is to ensure that the long-term interests of energy consumers are, consumers are protected, so they don't pay more than is necessary to ensure safe, reliable, secure energy electricity supply. But the upshot of this framework is that it makes it more difficult for transmission companies to build in additional costs associated with maintaining their social licence, um, like community benefit sharing, and then pass those costs on to electricity consumers. Renewable energy generators, um, who aren't constrained in this way, have actually done benefit sharing quite well but they're going to have to redouble their efforts in the context of the cumulative impacts with all of these projects within reses. Transmission businesses have not been as effective. So rural and First Nations communities affected by new transmission infrastructure should be able to participate in the early stages of the project development and, and route selection. But transmission companies cannot simply adopt the benefit sharing models created by wind and solar projects, enter into commercial negotiations with communities and then recover those costs from consumers. So we have a major problem in that social licence needs to be the central objective of governance reform, but the benefit, and of course the transition process as well, but benefit sharing has been complicated by existing laws. So at the federal level, the question becomes, whether there's scope to amend the national electricity law or rules, or whether we can take a broader interpretation of their requirements. The recent proposed addition of emissions reduction, um, re emissions reductions into the NEO um, and recommended social licence reforms by the Australian Energy Market Commission may help. Another option is to progress these issues at the state level. And that's what's happened in New South Wales. So here we have the Electricity Infrastructure Investment Act, and that does bring in broader considerations, like building local community support, creating employment, promoting local industry. So it doesn't just focus on economic efficiency. New South Wales governments also introduced a strategic benefit payment scheme to support the rollout transmission infrastructure. So private landowners are going to uh, receive $200,000 per kilometre of new transmission infrastructure on their land, paid in annual instalments over 20 years. And Victoria's just followed suit, announcing that they're going to take the same approach. So this is all very positive um, for the hosting landowners, at least. And 
you know, you can see that the importance of social licence is beginning to see, receive more attention and legislative backing. But implementation remains key. A trade-off is going to need to be made between the need to involve communities in route selection and the cost of electricity for every consumer. The need for these infrastructure projects is incontrovertible, but there are going to be questions about where we put them and how we do it to best balance all of these difficult factors. And finally, what about Australia's responsibilities, not just at home, but across the Pacific? Small island developing states, I've got my animation going, there it goes, um, face unique challenges in responding to climate change. And this brings me to my fourth point, that Australia should innovate in how it deploys and implements climate finance. As part of the Unsettling Resources research team here at uh, the Sydney Environment Institute, I've examined this challenge in the context of the renewable energy transition in the Pacific. For electricity generation, Many Pacific Island countries rely on imported diesel because they don't have domestic um, fossil fuel resources. But these diesel generation costs are really significant. Um, they can represent about 25% of the country's GDP. And rural and urban areas within the Pacific can have quite dis uh, significant disparities in access to electricity. Economies of scale are limited, construction costs are high, and local resources are limited. Market shares dominated by uh, state-owned enterprises and govern government business enterprises. And Pacific Island countries suffer from a lack of technology, technical expertise, and of course, accessible and appropriate climate finance. All of these challenges are very real. But at the same time, we can see a disconnect between multilateral and bilateral programs of climate finance and local needs. We've seen donor-driven initiatives that have failed to meet the expectations of Pacific Island communities and how a number of these projects just haven't been sustainable over time, either due to a lack of capacity or sometimes social and cultural uptake by local communities, particularly in rural areas. In the meantime, public, uh, sorry, Pacific Island countries are gradually shifting away from diesel um, energy generation to renewable energy generation. They have ambitious nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement and energy roadmaps that are in, in some cases targeting up to 100% renewable energy generation. Large amounts of public and private finance are going to be needed to implement these national roadmaps over a very short space of time. Development partners like Australia are going to need to engage closely and effectively with Pacific Island people to actually help them to absorb this level of funding and support and then attract ongoing private sector support into their economies. The Australian government, for its part, has announced it's going to focus its climate finance efforts on the Pacific and Southeast Asia, and it aims to demonstrate its value to the region through the quality of its climate finance um, and, its, and its development outcomes. The Albanese government's looking to repair serious compromises to this relationship over the last 10 years, including the previous government's refusal to increase its insufficient domestic emissions target for 2030. 
Instead of engaging in multilateral efforts, so for example the Green Climate Fund under the UNFCCC, the Australian Government is choosing to work bilaterally and directly in the Pacific as the Pacific's largest development assistance partner. So key initiatives include um, a new Office of the Pacific and DFAT and a, a fairly exciting new Australian infrastructure financing facility for the Pacific that became operational in 2019. So this was originally a $2 billion fund and the Albanese government's doubled its budget to enable $1 million in grants and $3 million in loans. And the fund's also going to be used to implement the new Pacific Climate Infrastructure Financing Partnership, details of which are yet to emerge. But these are concrete and promising steps that are gradually being operationalised and they may actually build to standalone legislation for the fund. And these steps are vital because we can't leave Pacific Island countries behind as we transition to a low carbon economy. Technology spillovers, sharing of finance, knowledge and expertise will be critical. But key questions remain about uh, the strategic priorities of the fund for renewable energy development and how this fund can best be used within specific Pacific Island contexts and how they can develop their processes to actually um, support local deliberation and buy-in to these project outcomes. The onus will be on the Australian government to ensure that climate finance is deployed through this dedicated facility in more effective ways for projects that build the capacity of Pacific Island people at the community level and can be managed and operated by these communities in an ongoing way. So in this context, governance issues relate to Australia's global responsibilities and relationships, as well as its domestic ones. Australia's transition to net zero is going to be an enormous social task. It's going to rely on a lot of heavy lifting from a decarbonised electricity sector, and we have lots of solutions. But this sort of change is not actually going to happen without the right governance settings. And removing the remaining emissions from the electricity system is going to be so much harder than people anticipate. We have to get this right. We have no more time to lose. State and local government action is vital, but we're not going to achieve effective transformation without coordinating policies, sectors and activities across states and territories Federal leadership will be critical from both the standpoint of the NEM, but also uh, in terms of our leadership globally, particularly in the Pacific. We have an ongoing agenda to look at the public and private components necessary to bring sustainable renewable energy projects to the Pacific. Innovation isn't going to happen on its own. We need to continue to develop and fund frameworks for Australia's experimentation to achieve rapid and critical transformations, and then share that innovation globally. Public-private collaboration is going to be vital. And large-scale climate litigation can't happen without equity. If we're going to accelerate mitigation and scale it up, then retaining social licence and legitimacy has to be central to the governance process. With the right governance in place that enables us to problem-solve, respond to the demands of equity 
plan and coordinate our, our activities and share knowledge, we can find solutions, implement solutions at scale and not leave the global south behind. Thank you.